So we've been off for a couple of weeks. That's true. We have uh, right about six weeks, I think. This is scheduled to go up Monday, right? Yeah. And we're back. Yeah. So after six weeks, we're back. Uh, we've had uh, I've had a pretty good start to my summer. Sarush, I hope you have as well. I've had a crazy summer so far. Yeah. Uh, how? Why? What's What's crazy about it? Well, I feel like we're. I don't want to bury the lead. There are several several interesting things that have happened in these six weeks. Um, That's true. Chris, you have some news. I do. We're, we want to do my news. Okay. Uh, so I got a new job. Cool. Congratulations. What are you working on? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm working for a research group at the University of Michigan uh, as a software developer working on their um, computer security and privacy related research projects. So this is notably not an iOS development job. Uh, despite the fact that it's not an iOS development job, I think there are going to be lots of super interesting topics that we're going to we're going to kind of come across as you like discover all this new stuff in your new job. I think so. I hope so. Um, I, we, we've talked about a couple episode ideas already, uh, but we're hoping to continue talking about various, uh, software engineering, software development topics, which should remain broadly interesting. And, uh, as far as I know, you're continuing to write iOS code. So yes, we, well, we can keep talking about iOS. Uh, yes and no. Um, oh, whoa. yeah. So uh, over the last six weeks, I was busy as well. I made an app. Um, we kind of alluded to it in the, in the last episode of season two, where we talked about, um, Swift on the server. And, um, so that app is out now out. That's right. And, uh, you, do you want to pitch this app quickly? I would love to pitch this app. Um, it's called Beacon. Uh, we launched it for DubDub. We built it, uh, me and Ashley Nelson Hornstein built it in five weeks. And um, the idea is basically that you can post when you're available or if there's something that you want to do and your friends will see that and they'll be able to like let you know that they want to go. So it kind of takes the pain out of like texting and organizing and trying to figure out like what you're up to. Um, and we built the cool. front end in Swift and we built the back end in Swift. So, yes, I will be building iOS apps, but I will also be building other things as well. That's awesome. I look forward to hearing more about your adventures in the uh, the server-side Swift yeah. uh, area, too. It's been very exciting, and I hope we have some cool server-side Swift episodes coming up this season. Hopefully, yeah. I, I, I'm not doing any server-side Swift, so that's on you. <laughs> um, yeah, it should be, it should be cool. Uh, listeners, stay tuned. So today, let's see, we, we were just talking about um, what we wanted to discuss on this episode, and it seemed like WWDC and particularly changes in Swift 4 were something that we could talk about. Yeah, for sure. We took a six-week break right at the, um, basically right at the eve of, you know, Apple's biggest developer thing, which is fine. It's, it's cool. Uh, but, well, we, we, it was about halfway through our break. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so there's like a ton of new stuff we could talk about there. Um, that's like another big thing that happened over these over these six weeks that we were off. So we could we could start there if you want. Uh, sure, let's do it. So so I have read some about Swift four, but not quite as much as I might have liked because I've been uh, for work related reasons working on my Python and Go skills, uh, which I, I definitely need to work on here. <laughs> um, but one of the major changes is something that we talked about last season, which is that strings are now collections and work a lot more like you might expect, right? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, set of changes because, like, you can just filter over a string now, and it will give you a set of characters, and you can, you know, um, decide if you know if you want to keep it, and so you can like end up with you know a thing on the other side. But it, because it's a collection, it doesn't necessarily behave how you might expect, right? If you filter over a string, you might expect to get another string back. 
but you don't. You get um, instead ar- you get you get an array of of character objects. Okay, and those characters are like Unicode Grapheme clusters, right? They are, I believe that's right there, Unicode Grapheme. Or I would hope that they are, because otherwise that seems like a sharp edge. So that's actually a new thing as well. They didn't used to be Unicode Grapheme clusters. It used to be that if you iterated over like the family emoji of all four things, you would get four different, if you iterated over their characters, you would get four or seven different things, depending on if the zero joiner was included. But now it's it's true Grapheme clusters, um, which is actually solving like a big Unicode weird weirdness thing, and so you'll actually get one character of all f- you know four people in the family as one unit. Awesome. Yeah. And even I mean, if you're working with a, a less complicated emoji, but you still you won't get like two broken characters that are each half of the uh, the emoji character that you're working with. Yeah, exactly. And then the character counting also works more as expected. It's based on gra- grapheme. Just means. Uh, for our listeners who, who don't do any linguistics or anything, just like one physical character of, of you know, connected strokes that makes up sort of one character. That So that's a grapheme. And so it, it basically iterates over the graphemes rather than iterating over any set of bytes or any, any whatever else. So, yeah. So they really papered over a lot of really interesting, weird string issues in Swift 4. What other issues have they... Uh, have, have they papered over? So there's one that I don't think... Um, oh, and just for completeness sake, we should say that if you have an array of um, these graphing clusters and you want to turn it back into a string, you can just pass it to the string initializer and it will just do the right thing and create a string out of that. So that's kind of how you get back to having a string. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, other weird things that they changed for strings... Um, one weird one is now, so you know how a string has many different views, right? It has its character view, UTF-8 view, UTF-16 view. Right, and, although char- has char- character view has gone away right, now, right? So character view is now just, the string itself is the character view, which is great. Um, but each of those, those views is basically like an iterable collection, and so they each had their own index in the past. So you'd have like string.utf8 index, string.utf16 index, and so there is right. now a proposal for um, basically making the uh, index of all of those collections be the same type. So you could take an index from the UTF-8 um, you could take an index from the UTF-8 view and then just use it in the UTF-16 view and just get the right thing out of it. What? How? Voodoo hmm. magic. But what if you have an index that is that is in like in between? Ah, that's a great question. So I, I actually um, had the chance to kind of talk this out with one of the people who works on this stuff, and uh, he sort of talked me through the different options. So, so what are the different options as far as you can? As far as you can imagine, like let's say you you're in the UTF-8 view, you're split on a um, on a on a grapheme, and then you go to this like default grapheme view, and you try to get something at that index. What should happen? What could happen? I mean, so you might return a a broken or nonsensical character that's half of the grapheme cluster, right? Right. You could somehow detect that, although I'm not totally sure how you would detect that elegantly. Uh, and you either walk backward or forward to the like to the next or or the previous like right. complete grapheme cluster start. Yep. And there's one more option, which is just like the joke answer. Fatal error. Also, the title of this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So you could just trap and just like explode, which is probably not the best thing to do, but it is an option. That that seems like the wrong option. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you could also like you can't you can't quite return an optional 
with the way things are structured at this point, but maybe in a theoretical world, if things were structured differently, you could turn it return optional. Yeah, but then you're going to end up having so many. Well, yeah. I guess yeah. string processing already has a lot of optionals. Yeah, it's not pretty. Um, but I think the answer that they're going to go with is basically walk backwards. Like, let's say you're splitting, right? So, so like a flag emoji is basically two characters for the country codes. So the U.S. flag is a U and an S. Um, if you split that and your index is in between the U and the S, it will walk back to the U and it will give you the whole flag. That's, I think, the thing they're going to go with, which, you know. I mean, that makes sense. But how do you detect in the general case? I mean, what if you land on um, a, a person who's in the middle of a one of the like complicated family emojis? So the... Like, I don't think it would be an O of one operation for sure, but like basically you would walk through and or walk backward, right? Well, yeah. So you'd walk through, and then if you hit some, if you go past the one that you were expecting, because they have to be comparable, um, then you like sort of take a take one step back, and that's the character that you return. Hmm. That could. I mean, I see how that's the behavior people expect. That also has some. Right, just computational complexity yeah. implications. Yeah, and that's the thing with strings is, you know, they're not arrays. Yeah. They're, they're not, you know, you can't... It's really surprising how how this stuff is just so much more complicated than any, than anyone would, would think. Yeah. So, okay, that's about 10 minutes about strings. What else is known <laughs> in Swift 4? Um, yeah, so Swift 4, another really fun one that is very useful is uh, multi-line strings. I mean, it was like string literals, I should say. So I saw this. This is just you can now have multi-line string literals by using three double quotes to open and end the the, the literal. Exactly. Okay, that's definitely useful. Um, yeah. So this uh, w- one interesting thing with this that I thought was kind of notable is if you're inside that um, string literal block, you can use uh, quotation marks freely without having to escape them, which is really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Can you still do string interpolation in multi-line literals? That's a good question. I would expect that you could. I, I would hope that you could. Um, it would seem very out of line with Swift philosophy if you couldn't. So one really interesting, like, kind of edgy thing, not edgy, but, like, one component of this that I would not have expected to have to think about is your code is indented. Right, and you, that means that your string, mm-hmm. your multi-line string literal, is also going to be indented. So, how do you know which of those indentations to strip out, and which of them are important for the actual string itself? Don't most programming languages that do this sort of thing just strip out all of the white space and assume it's fine? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but it's it's an actual question because, like, that is a decision that you have to make, and I never had considered that yeah. before. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing. What they end up doing is they like figure out how far indented the first line is and they kind of subtract that indentation from every other line or something like that. Huh. Which is like kind of weird, but makes sense. That's something where you have to kind of think about exactly what the result will be. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Although I guess you have to have some way to put white space in there, but. I mean, we already have escape characters for things like tabs. Right. Well, like, imagine if you're trying to generate, like, a Python program or something, and those that white space yeah. is actually important, or a Haskell program. Um, and the new lines have to be preserved. That's another thing. Um, it's an interesting problem. You would not have ex- I would not have expected it to be as complicated as it is. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 
Maybe I'm wrong about what most other languages do. I guess I don't actually know. Um, they have to do something <laughs> smart here. I guess you would have to, yeah. Yeah. So you can, uh, and yeah, it looks like you can do in string interpolation inside multi-line literals, which is good. Um, so, you know, various languages have like different behavior depending on what sort of string literal you're using, right? Whether they're single quotes or double quotes right. or the, like... And uh, it, that's just so much, like, annoying complexity, right? There's languages that support both single quotes and double quotes, and that determines what you can do on the inside of the string in terms of what you have to escape and what you don't. Exactly. I hate JavaScript so much. <laughs> just subtweeting JavaScript yeah, just, really hard here. I'm not even going to subtweet them. I'm going to fully call them out. JavaScript, your behavior is bad, and you should feel bad. <laughs> So one of the other things in Swift 4 that I was reading about is that there's some improvements to dictionaries and sets, more more collection uh, improvements here. And I, I found the article that I was reading earlier about them. Um, there's not a lot here that is, I think, really super, I don't know, super exciting, but it's definitely useful. Um, you can make a dictionary from uh, a sequence of key value pairs right? So yep. you want to merge two arrays into a dictionary. That's good. Yep. Um, There's all this stuff is like, it's, it's stuff that you could have written yourself, but um, the fact that it just wasn't in every project is just like so frustrating. So the, I think the canonical example of this is merging two dictionaries. All right. Like I have um, this, these values in this dictionary and those values in this dictionary. And I just want to put them in the same dictionary. Um, and maybe I want to define like who overrides whom, however that works, but like, just please merge these two together. And it's just like having to copy and paste that between every project is so annoying. And mm -hmm. this proposal resolves that, um, filtering over dictionaries, uh, is another thing. Um, this default value syntax for getting items from dictionaries is going to remove like half of the no coalescing I ever yep. wrote in, in Swift 3. Absolutely. So that's another big one is you can now in the subscript provide your own default value. So let's say you're building something like a bag um, where, you know, it, it you want to count, you want to have like items and the count of that item that you have. So you could say like for the default value return zero, and then it will like kind of handle that for you. And then, um, and like, you could just make a bag like much more simply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the proposal goes into a ton of detail about all the different things you might want to do and the, that this new set of functions and initializers and everything gives you. Um, being able to map and filter is really nice. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of good dictionary stuff, and there's some really just, like, convenient things that you can do now. Um, they have a new function mm -hmm. called, um, like, init. You init with some array, and you group it by some key, like some a function that takes the object in the array and then like returns like a grouping key. And so you, I mean, like everybody's <laughs> written that code before where you just kind yeah. of sorting things into buckets. So like sort things by their first character. Um, yeah. There are, uh, yeah, there's like lots of, lots of little weird things you could do. There's a good article by Erica Sadoon that I will put in the, uh, in the show notes called the surprising awesomeness of grouped dictionaries. And so sort of, cool. yeah, grouping um, things into uh, sort of like different buckets of true and false, sorting things by their first name, first character, first like initial, like a name, sorting by its first initial, 
um, mm-hmm. grouping people based on their city, let's say, like people objects based on the city property. There's so much cool stuff you can do in it. <laughs> um, and this stuff will be really powerful. So I am looking forward to being able to use this as well. Awesome. Yeah. So this advanced stuff, you may not be copying into your own dictionaries, into your own projects, and then doing it manually. And then you end up in a situation where you have messier code than you would ideally want just because you didn't want to make an extension for something or didn't think to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Another improvement, another thing that we talked about last season, uh, the file private, um, file private is gone. Yeah. File private is now gone and private is even weirder than it was before. I think. Doesn't this just mean that private acts more or less like file private used to? I may be wrong about this, but I think now private acts a little bit differently than it used to. And then file private does today. Really? Private, yeah. So private now is private to the type. It's it's type private and file. It's like type and file private. So like if you have an if you have a uh, you know the main body of the class up up top and you have an extension oh, yeah. in the same file, you can still access private things through that. But if you have some other object, it can't access a private member of that type unless it's within that type as an extension. Okay, that totally makes sense. That's yeah. how I would expect private to work. That's like I think. not a bad, not a bad solution to the problem. It's still, I still feel kind of weird that we're still leaning on files as an as an abstraction for like code organization, but um, I'll take it. Yeah, pretty much. That's how I feel. Um, and it's like way also like I care about how this stuff looks, and it just looks way less stupid than file private. Yeah, yeah. And it looks like file private maybe actually is still around, but you can, uh, but it allows crossing that type boundary. Then is that right? That might be right. I'm not a hundred. Oh yeah, yes. It looks like that is the case. Right. Which is good. We're, like nobody will ever clearly, use it, and it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, we're very prepared for this. Yeah. Right. Okay. So file private now is the same, and private means like private to within this type in this file. That's usually what you want. Right. That's almost always what you want. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Yeah. Works for me. What else uh, what, what else is new here, I think? Yeah, there's some other stuff. One that they didn't talk about on stage, partially because I kind of don't think that they're going to hit the target, but which if they don't hit the target, I'll be very sad about, is conditional conformances. Oh. Yeah. It's supposed to come in Swift 4. It's approved. It's targeted for Swift 4. But like, is it going to make it? I don't know. Was it one of the tasks that they were looking for someone from the community to help implement? I would be very surprised because that seems like a real bag of hurt. It really does. What What were the two things that they, what were the proposals they were looking for help with, though? I forget. I don't, I wouldn't know how to find that. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, so um, let's do a crash course on what, uh, what is conditional conformances. Right. So uh, to try to do this off the top of my head, this means you can write something like, uh, extension, um, array, uh, to conform array to some protocol when, um, that array contains a specific type, right? Um, yes, yes. Or when the arrays types also conform to some protocol. Okay. Yeah. Wait, yeah, actually, the thing that I just said, I think you can do that somehow already in Swift 3, can't you? Yes, but then you um, you can't further conform that array to a protocol. You can say, I want to extend any um, arrays that only have people in them or person objects in them and go from there. But you can't say, I want to extend any array that has person objects in it to also be conformed to this protocol conditionally conform to this protocol. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the 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 canonical example of this is equatable. Right now, array is not equatable because you don't right. know if the thing inside of it is equatable. And this is the exact example I had in mind while I was trying to articulate what this meant. Is there's no way right now to express arrays equatable when the things inside it are equatable. Right. So they do all kinds of weird stuff, like they will have a special overload for the equal equal operator that works with arrays two arrays of t. Um, and while that works and it makes life easy, it doesn't actually conform to equatable. Right. And that's not something, I mean, you can do that with equatable. There may be other cases where having a free function that works with these two, the two generic types is way more clumsy than that. Right. Um, so, uh, arrays of optionals can't be, um, equated with equal equal operator, uh, arrays of arrays mm-hmm. can't be, anytime you nest this stuff, it just, it falls apart immediately because it can't, you know, build on Swift's internal structure yeah. of what equatable is. So there's a proposal up for this? So, yes, there is a proposal. Um, I have it in my I'd history. In... It's 0143. Um, let me okay. it to you. Um, well, let's let's throw that in the show notes. Yep. and Because uh, I'd definitely be interested to read this, and maybe some of our listeners are too. Yeah, and there, there's some interesting problems they bring up in the proposal, such as like, the kind of like diamond problem of like, okay, well, if you can get this function from this protocol conformance or this protocol conformance, like how do you know how to get it? So they talk mm-hmm. about some of that stuff in here. But ultimately what this means is arrays of equatable will be equatable. Arrays of JSON objects will be JSON objects. Um, arrays of NS coding objects will be NS coding. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's cool. I will definitely, uh, I'll definitely read over this after we finish recording. Here. Yeah, it's a pretty cool... It's a pretty cool um, proposal, and it says uh, status accepted. Uh, it doesn't say slated for Swift four or whatever. Yeah. So I just th- this is gonna really like, especially on the server, we do a lot of JSON stuff, and this is gonna make life so much easier. Yeah, I can absolutely believe that. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to this specifically for JSON handling, which is a great segue into the next thing that Swift four brings us: JSON handling. <laughs> That's right. There are so there are a couple different coding and archiving sort of improvements in Swift 4, right? Yep. And this stuff was coming out right when I was starting to switch um really right right when I was starting the process of switching jobs. So I'm really a little bit behind the times here. It's it's amazing how I don't know the things change and, and I'm behind the times and I'm trying to get up like figure out what idiomatic go is and <laughs> Learn the ins and outs of Python. Um, and starting a job and get going on new code bases. Yeah, which will be a future episode. Yeah, we're going to have uh, to do that. It's going to be fun. Listeners, if you have tips for jumping into a new and unfamiliar code, ba- code base, please send them and uh, we'll, we'll cover those in this episode. And and you'll help me out at my new job, too. <laughs> <laughs> so JSON coding in Swift 4. JSON coding in Swift 4. So basically, NS coding in Swift 4 got a major overhaul. Right. I, I've, I've read a little bit about this. Yeah. So pretty much if you take a struct and you write, you know, colon for like conforms to, and then you write codable, you're done. Just magic happens under the hoods. It can be archived to data yep. and unarchived. Yep. Done. Just like that. Beautiful. So, and that works with structs. Does that work with classes? Uh, Does it work with enums? Yes. But typically when they give an example, they use structs because you couldn't do that with structs before because NS coding relied on NS object, which made it have to be an object. Right. And the things that you're encoding and decoding probably should be usually data and not like, I don't know, not, not weirdly full-blown, full-blown classes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but of course, if they're also codable, then it will like, like recursively go down through the tree or whatever. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, so there's a couple of Does... interesting weird caveats here. So you have any, it sounds like you have a question first. Oh, I was just going to say, does this lean on Swift, like on reflection in Swift, or does it lean on some other infrastructure that's been built into the language? I believe it's more the latter than the former. Um, basically, okay. if you conform to Codable, they will code gen a bunch of stuff for you under the hood that uh, you will okay. never see. That makes sense. Yeah. So they code gen a, like a coding keys enum that, um, sort of, like like exists there and represents the keys of all the properties on that thing. You can then override that and then like provide your own custom keys, um, which is a weird, interesting kind of new Swift idiom that we really haven't had before. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then depending on how you want to encode the thing or decode the thing, you create something called an encoder. So you can create a JSON encoder or a I believe you could do like a you know data encoder or some kind of other encoder. Um, and that is the thing that will determine like how it will be encoded. Oh, I see. Currently you can only do JSON encoding, but later in the future, there will be like an NS coder, NS coding encoder. Okay. Yeah. That will work more like foundations, um, NS coding and like key archiver and stuff. That's awesome. That the code gen that you're describing sounds quite a lot like the code that we were, um, either writing or code genning ourselves in Swift three when we were, uh, dealing with JSON and dealing with storing data blobs in Yap database. Yep, pretty much. Um, and that's how we we do use CodeGen in um, in Urban Archive to make that work, and it, it works pretty well. I'm happy with it, but like it'll be nice to have like kind of first party support for this. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So the weird caveats here are if you want to um, do anything other than JSON encoding, you're kind of out of luck for now. Um, if you want to uh, so if you want to like have a custom strategy for encoding dates or encoding, um, data, they give you some options for that. So you'll be able to say, well, my data is in, or my dates are in like ISO 65531 or whatever that, um, ISO mm-hmm. protocol is, or you can say it's actually in seconds since the epoch or, or epic, however you say it, uh, milliseconds since the epic, or you can say, just use this custom date formatter, which is also cool. Um, and the interface for that is like an enum with an associated value of a date formatter, which is like a really nice Swift idiom. Um, data has similar options, but if you want to do anything like totally custom, like let's say you want you, ha- you get some data from the server and you want to turn it into like a UI image, you have to completely re-implement that like init with coder method. And then for every property, write out a line of code of like, okay, decode uh. this, decode this. And then when you get to the data one, decode this and turn it into a UI image. Like it becomes much more... Um, kind of custom at that point. So you can't just override like how one thing is, is parsed. You have to override the whole thing. That's annoying. So the second you want to customize anything, you suddenly own all this stuff that you have to write and maintain. Pretty much. Hmm. Except for except for the specific keys. Like if you do want to override just the keys, you can just choose the keys. Um, but like net, net, it's better than what we had before. Oh yeah. Right. Like, Absolutely. like maybe you'll have to do one custom one, but the rest of them you'll get for free, which is like a little annoying, but not so bad. Yeah. Swift work. Crazy. Yeah. Release. Absolutely. Yeah. So one other thing in Swift four, there's some, uh, some key value coding support in here now, finally. Yeah. This is a weird one. And it's weird, but it's kind of neat. And like, this is implemented in a way that can be checked. And I, 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 I think I like it. Although, I never use key, va- key value coding that often in uh, in the Objective C days, really, and 
I, I don't see myself using it very much in Swift either. Yeah. But maybe I'm just doing something wrong or doing something in a non-idiomatic way. Key value coding is is a weird one. Um, I've used it like under the hood of things. So like if you use interface builders, like user defined properties that will use yeah. key value coding under the hood. If you do like a JSON parser in objective C, those are always key value coding under the hood. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. But this is like a compile at compile time. Like we know the key path to this property and then we're going to like do something with that. Um, one interesting thing is that there's no people were saying, well, maybe there should be like a map overload. So like I wanna I wanna map over an array and I wanna pull out this property from this object. How like why can't I do that? Why do I still have to create a closure? Um and so that's an interesting like interesting like little little tidbit about this thing. Hmm. I probably don't think I don't think I'll use this very much. I think I'm with you. I think I can't see the value. I can see there are cases when maybe you pass a closure to to something that gets some value that you don't necessarily want to get right at the time. Although I guess you can still do that with a nice API with auto closure. So I don't know that this is really useful in that case. Right. Yeah, that's an um, interesting case. Well, this is a thing that clearly people wanted. Yeah. And I'm glad it's here. So one cool thing that I have seen someone build with this, um, it's called query, but with a K. So okay. K-U-E-R-Y. And there's a GitHub project for it. Um, it's it's uh, by a gentleman named um, I, I can't remember. I, I think so. He helped organize Try Swift, so I got to meet him in Japan. Um, but the way that it works is you can kind of use these type safe key paths and these custom operators that he gives you to like write a query for core data, and it's a type safe query. Interesting. So you can say like slash person dot name equals Katsumi, which is his name, um, and slash person dot age is greater than twenty, and it will convert that into an NS predicate and do all the stuff for you. But if you try to do person dot name is greater than twenty, it won't compile, which is pretty wild. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really dope. And it, all right, yeah, it's cool. So I'll, I'll I'll take it back. This is useful. Probably if you're writing, like you said, something that is using it under the hood to implement neat, neat, almost meta programming features rather than something that you're going to write in day-to-day applications. Yeah, for sure. It, it, um, currently, he says at the bottom of his, um, readme, he says it currently relies on an unofficially available API to turn any given key path into an NS predicate. And, um, he has a Swift bug report to try to expose that so that we can like build cool features with it, which would be really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. I can hear the excitement <laughs> in your voice. It's cool. Yeah. That's a cool idea. I, you know, we don't use core data, but, um, as we discussed last season, but <laughs> you could totally build something similar for, I mean, pick your, pick your database system. Yeah, for sure. And especially like on the server, I'd be really excited to use something like this. Um, there you go. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff you could do. So in a future episode, I really want to talk about your experiences building and launching Beacon, especially during WWDC. I have to imagine that was kind of a a wild ride. It was very hectic. (laughs) Uh, It was fun, but it was super hectic. Yeah. Yeah. So unless you had anything else, I think that's most of the exciting stuff in Swift 4. Um, although that's not even true. I mean, refactoring. Yeah. Well, refactoring <laughs> is like an Xcode component, but it's built in Swift, and it's like it's a whole thing. It's I'm so excited about it. I'm well, it's an Xcode. It uses like the it leans on the Swift language infrastructure, though, right. the Clang infrastructure. Right. 
And um, I, there's just so much new, interesting, good tooling stuff that came out. I'm like so excited about it. That's really awesome. Yeah, I was watching the the keynote and um, or the platform State of the Union, and noted that the uh, refactoring tools are available not just for Swift but C, C plus plus, um, and Objective C. Yep. And one of the code bases I'm working on now is a, a C code base. Uh, actually, a couple of them are C code bases. So maybe I'll, I'll at some point I'll figure out how to get this all building in Xcode and be able to use that as my my IDE for at least the C code bases. That'd be pretty awesome. And uh, use the refactoring tools. I don't know if there's much else to say about the refactoring tools besides yay they exist and they're way better than they ever were before. Yeah, they're so good. It's like. I, we're using Xcode 9 in one of our projects, and it's so good. Um, it's like it's like exactly how you want it to be. It's faster than it used to be. It's like all in line. Like it's just beautiful. It's a nice thing. That's really great. Um, what else? Anything else you were really excited about at uh, at WWDC? I think we should start wrapping up the pod. I think we're probably at around thirty minutes, but uh, yeah, we're, we're close. To that um, I so there was a lot of good tooling stuff that came out. Um, refactoring is the biggest one. The other big one that I don't know if everyone caught was, um, you can now debug wirelessly over Wi-Fi. Oh yeah. I saw so that. So you can build from your computer and build onto your device over Wi-Fi without ever plugging it in. So I'm skeptical about how well this will work, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where if they can deliver on it, then great. And if they can't, yeah, you know, they tried. <laughs> so, I realized, though, this is probably a killer uh, feature, not necessarily for iPads and iPhones, but like Apple TV, right? Oh, that's Thinking about my apartment, the Apple TV is in the other room, like 20 feet from my computer here. And I'm not unplugging it from my home theater setup, quote unquote home theater, from my TV and speakers (laughs) to drag it over to my TV and have to like hook a monitor or something. Well, I guess you have the virtual monitor thing if it's it's plugged in, right? I think so, yeah. But I was thinking about that. That would make developing on actual Apple TV harder way easier in my apartment. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. And then there wasn't there always some sort of wireless debugging or something supported for the watch? Um... I mean, there's no plug, so it has to be wireless, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So maybe may- maybe they took this as an opportunity to make that faster and more reliable. Yeah, something good there. But yeah, Hopefully. all in all, good WWDC, a lot of promises. I want to see all those things be like, you know, fleshed out and see if they're all real, but very exciting stuff. Yeah, I've, I wasn't there, uh, but I would say it was a good conference. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is this is the kickoff for season three, man. Yeah, I guess what should we what do we want to say to our listeners uh, for those of you who are are newer and maybe we didn't mention this um this is a weekly podcast. This is the first of uh what'll be 20 episodes for season 3. Yep. And half of those episodes, the even number episodes, will appear uh exclusively on our Patreon page and we'll have a link to that right in the show notes. And uh if you want to support us there, uh it's our Patreon supporters who make it possible for us to pay for the hosting and editing um, costs for the, this, uh, for the podcast. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm really excited about the season. I think we're going to have a lot of cool episodes. I think so. I really hope so. Uh, we have a number of cool things planned. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Welcome back to season three and uh, I hope you enjoy. Sweet. I will talk to you next week, Chris. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Bye.